0: As Protestants, we long for public leaders who are motivated by servanthood and integrity rather than motivated by selfish desire, money, or power. And we long for public leaders who we can point to because of their character and because of their servant nature. You know, this is no different. The desire for servant leaders is no different from what we see in the pages of the New Testament. In the days of Jesus, Israel longed for servant leadership. They longed for a servant king who was promised in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets. One who would come and rule with justice and mercy. One who would not be corrupted by the Roman Empire just because they give them a position or put money in their pocket, just like King Herod, who was a puppet king, a puppet Jewish king for the Roman Empire, not a true Jewish king. And so Israel longed for a king, a servant king who would establish justice and who would minister to those who were broken and needy, the people of Israel. And Jesus, once he came, he began to recruit people, not the religious leaders, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, because those systems had been corrupted in some way, shape, or form. But he went down to fishermen. We'll see more about that. Next week, he went down to everyday people like you and I to call us to follow him. But first, we need to see what we are calling, what we are following, right? And who he calls us to. So today, we're going to see more about who is Jesus and what's his message. And we begin to unpack this in the weeks to come. So we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, Pastor Albert launched us off where we saw the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came announcing the arrival of the kingdom. And John was calling people to a baptism of repentance. John was a forerunner to Jesus. And he had one singular purpose, and that was to pave the way for the coming king. And John's preaching and his proclamation led to a baptism that would prepare hearts to repent. Repentance just simply means turn. John wanted to turn people's hearts To the Lord. Turn people's hearts to Jesus. And today we're going to look at Jesus' baptism. And this begins to beg us to ask a question. Jesus is sinless. We all know that. So the first question is, why does a sinless Savior, the Son of God, the second member of the triune Godhead, why does he need to be baptized? Why would he need to be baptized unto a baptism of repentance, which is for sinners like you and me who need to turn our hearts to the Lord? And I want you to see this morning, it's, it's because Jesus wants to demonstrate perfect kingdom obedience. The title of our, this, our, morning, our, our message this morning is Kingdom Obedience Perfected. And we're going to see that in Mark chapter 1. If you have God's Word, will you take it? And Please turn with me to Mark 1, verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Give you a moment to turn there. Mark 1, verse 9. It's a short passage. I'm just going to read it to you. And then we're going to jump into the text because it's a, there's a lot to explain, even though it's a short passage. Okay. Mark chapter one, starting in verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's his baptism. Then in verse 12, you see his temptation. And the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at today. Point number one we see is the baptism of the king. He's the king. He's already the king. He's the king of kings, the son of God, sinless. Why does he need to be baptized by John the Baptist, coming with a baptism of repentance? And it's to exemplify and fulfill perfect obedience. The reason why Jesus subjects himself to baptism is that by going through everything that he commands you and I to go through, which is to be baptized, it qualifies him as the perfect obedient man, as a perfect obedient sinless savior. Matthew tells us that, w- that when Jesus came to be baptized, actually, John the Baptist, I call him JB. Okay, John the Baptist did not want to baptize him. John the Baptist is like, who are you? You're the behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know who, who you are, and I know who I am. I have no right to baptize you. And in in Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, you know, John the Baptist actually doesn't want to baptize Jesus, and Jesus says, just permit it. Just this once. Just once. Just, just, just let this happen. Why? Because in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? It means Jesus wants to fulfill, demonstrate perfect obedience. So that's, that's really simple. But there are two symbolic things that are happening here. Right? Two symbolic things that are happening at Jesus' baptism. Number one, you're gonna see, this is a type of divine commissioning. And, and how you see this is, this is Mark's purpose. Mark specifically quotes, cites, shows you several Old Testament passages. And these passages talk about a servant. Not just any servant, but a servant king, a suffering servant, who would bring about justice, who would bring about God's mission, who would bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to the nations. And so you begin to see that, and this is kind of a divine commissioning for the servant's earthly ministry, the, the divine servant, the servant Messiah. But secondly, you're going to see a divine confirmation, right? We read it already, but when, when God the Father announces from heaven, this is my beloved son, th- those are also citations of the Old Testament confirming that this indeed is the son of God, the Messiah, right? So I want you to see that Jesus fulfills Old Testament messianic prophecy and, and, and in this you see a divine confirmation, a divine commission, a divine confirmation. First, when, when you see in this passage, when you see that the heavens being torn open, that word torn is schizo. Literally being split open, right? The, 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 the heavens are torn open, but this is not the first time that if you're a Jewish Christian, Or you're a Jew receiving and listening to Mark's gospel. This is not the first time that you're seeing this. This is reminiscent of Isaiah 64, verse 1, where it it talks about the Lord splitting the heavens and earth and coming down. And and the context of Isaiah 60 is, again, this servant. This servant that's going to come. This Messiah that's going to come. And then it says the Spirit... Descending on him like a dove. That's that's not just poetic language, right? Oh yeah, like this dove, you know how peaceful it is. We know that Jesus' ministry is going to be anything but peaceful. If people are going to oppose him, they're going to want to kill him, and finally they put him to the cross. All right, So what does this mean? This is actually a citation of several passages from Isaiah. This is Isaiah eleven two, Isaiah chapter forty two verse one, and Isaiah chapter sixty one verse one. Uh, the references are are, are behind me. Uh, on the PowerPoint. And here, the Spirit of God is anointing Jesus. And it talks about the Spirit coming upon the servant of God. And it talks about bringing justice to the nations. And so to fulfill our righteousness, to bring justice to the nations, this is part of His mission. Right, and then, when it says the Father's voice affirms, Jesus, you are my beloved Son. This echoes Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. And then once again, Isaiah 42, verse 1. But Psalm 2, 7, most scholars, and we all believe, Psalm chapter 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. That's a a big technical term. But all that's saying is that this is one of the psalms that's talking, speaking forward about Jesus coming. And there's so much hope in this psalm. right? And this psalm is not just talking about a a servant. It's talking about a king. So now you have this combination of servant-king right here at his baptism. Jesus being commissioned and confirmed as one that servant to that king. And it talks about the son of David, this future king that's going to come and who and into his, whose hands the father is well pleased to place his mission to bring salvation to the nation. And so Jesus identifies with us by being that servant, perfect human being. And, and you're going to see that it builds up to this. He's He's completely human. He's 100% God, 100% human. That's what Mark shows us about Jesus. And now Jesus is going to be tempted, just like you and I face temptation, right? There is, there is, there is a contrast there. Now, before we get there, there's something interesting that I do want to share with you, because you know you're, you're looking at a passage like Mark, and you're like, dude, skies opened up, schizo, you know, and or something. Like that. The voice from heaven comes down. I mean, who's there? If I'm there, okay, if I'm there, I'm like, this guy's God, right? I mean, if you're there, you're like, there's no question about it. this is God. I'm worshiping him. There is no question. He is God. And then what would happen? This would be in the front page of the Jerusalem Times. Jerusalem Times, you know, voice from heaven, right? Opens, oh, you, you wouldn't believe it and, and confirming this is, this is the son of God. And I would think that a lot of people would worship Jesus. So I remember, this was probably, I don't know, 2004. I was sitting in an in, 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 in exegesis of the Gospels. I raised my hand and asked the professor. I said, "Did everybody else hear this? Is Jesus the only one hearing this?" And so he kind of does the scholar's dance and kind of dances around it a little bit because I, I don't think we know for certain. Okay, but then he kind of alluded me to a commentary, um, and there's a scholar named David Garland. Okay, and he's a good scholar. And he writes this, one can assume that the voice was also audible only to Jesus since it speaks in the second person, you are. Not in the third person, this is. And you contrast that with Mark 9, 7, where you have a this is type of statement. So therefore, it's directed to Jesus and to Mark's readers. So there are two people here who are hearing this. Two groups of people there 's one Jesus is hearing this, second group long after Jesus died and resurrected it 's all recorded and mark 's audience now, like you and me, are hearing this and so Mark wants you to know this is the Son of God, even though the, throughout the rest of Mark the disciples may have not heard this because they don't they don 't believe yet right they 're still struggling, so you begin to see this and and this is important because when you look at the grammar, this is why the Word of God is not to be taken lightly. That even the grammar can make a difference in helping you understand the context and the audience. And that's why in the Back to the Bible Sunday School, we're emphasizing how to interpret the Bible. Right? And so so that's very good. That's baptism of the king. That's point number one, the baptism of the king. Point number two is the temptation of the king. The temptation of the king. Uh, the points are pretty obvious. It's in the text, right? But that's the point of preaching. You have to be able to see the points in the text. And what we see here is the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Three things I want you to see from here. Notice verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. So just like Pastor Albert mentioned last week, immediately, immediately, immediately. That's like Mark's favorite transition word. Immediately, immediately, because he wants to move you quickly. He doesn't give you a lot of details like the other gospel writers. His purpose is just, this is Jesus. He has authority. He's the son of God. He wants his readers to know this is God's son. God said it from heaven, quoting Old Testament passages, and now he's saying he's being tempted. That's it, right? Immediately, the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And so the first thing I want you to see is that here in verse 12, Jesus' is temptation is God-ordained, is that the spirit drove. It's the spirit. Jesus didn't just say, oh, what should I do today? I just got baptized. I'm going to go to Macy's. No, he, that's not what he did, right? He said, "I just got baptized." Boom, immediately, balo. For those of you who have your Greek Bibles open, I know there's one over there. Right? This word drove, it's different from Matthew and Luke, which is spirit-led. That's the second thing I want you to see. The first thing is that this is God ordained. The Spirit drove Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is the word drove. When you compare that with The Spirit led. The same word ekbalo is cast out demons. Jesus was expelled. And when you combine that with Mark's immediately, immediately he was expelled into the wilderness. This is complete submission to the Holy Spirit. And complete submission to the Father. That's what Mark wants you to see with his choice of words. It's different from Matthew and Luke. Mark has a different purpose. He wants you to begin to see the theme, servant. Submission, suffering servant, Isaiah. You see the connections. Servant, servants are humble. Servant leaders, servant kings are humble. They submit to the will of the Father. Mark 10:45. He did not. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And He's going to give His life as a ransom for many, God's elect. And so you begin to see this unfolding. The humility of Jesus Christ. So the first thing is, this is God ordained. The second thing you see here is the submission to the Father and the Spirit. He immediately was cast out. He didn't have a choice. Even though he's the Son of God, he's equal to the Father and the Spirit. He could have said, no, 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 I don't want to go out there yet. I want to spend more time in Galilee. But right away, he's cast out into the wilderness. And then the third thing that we see is unique to Mark is only Mark. You see, the Gospel, uh, the other Gospel writers include His temptation with more detail. But only Mark mentions wild animals. That's wild, right? Wild animals. So the Son of God who created all these things could control them if he wanted, and now he submits himself to human frailty. Once again, suffering servant, humanity of Christ, humble, subjects himself to the will of the Father and the Spirit, and now you see the reality of this temptation. Putting himself at risk in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Wild animals. He had to maintain survival with no food. Right? No food. He's fasting. That's what the other uh, gospel writers tell us. And the fact that this is the Son of God does not take away from the difficulty that Christ encounters. So three things. is One, it's God ordained. The Spirit drove him. Secondly, the Spirit expelled him, which means he's submitting to the will of the Father and the Spirit. And the third thing is, Jesus was in real danger. And why is that important? Because this is a real temptation. Okay, I'll come back to this. Let me make a note about 40 days and 40 nights. Right? Is that 40 days and 40 nights, it's reminiscent. So if you're listening to this, you're reading this, and if you're Jewish or if you know the Old Testament, you're like, bam, all of these symbols are coming. 40 days and 40 nights. Is that when Moses was at Mount Sinai receiving the law, Moses did not eat or drink water. He simply wrote on the tablets. You know, the, the law of the Lord is and it's not talking about your windows, tablet, or your iPad, but, but literally like real things of stone, and he was writing the law in Exodus twenty four eighteen and Exodus thirty four twenty eight tells us that it was for forty days and forty nights. Then you go to first Kings nineteen, verse eight. Elijah is journeying to the mountain where the Lord is gonna reveal himself to Elijah. And that journey was 40 days, 40 nights, where God would speak to him. Then in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, so this is later, this is after Mark, right? So in Acts 1, verse 3, Jesus is in his resurrected glory, and he appears to his disciples, how long? Teaching about what? The kingdom of God, which is a theme of Mark, right? For how long? 40 days. And so what we see here is that 40 days and 40 nights, it's nights—it's—it's—it's it's a divine encounter, a divine experience. And that's exactly what's happening in the temptation. It's a divine encounter. It's a divine experience. You know, it's the Son of God engaging with Satan, and you're going to see that, right? Now, I want to now go back to the purpose of Jesus' temptation. But before I go here, so let me keep it on this slide. Before I go there, let me tell you what I'm doing a little bit. Right? Because this is going to take us outside of Mark. It needs to be said the Mark does not go into detail about Jesus' temptation. He doesn't tell us anything. He doesn't even tell you if Jesus overcame. You assume. He doesn't even tell you, you know, did Jesus overcame temptation? He doesn't tell you where he was, you know, wilderness. He doesn't tell you, like, why he's tempted or what the temptations were. Okay? He just tells you he was tempted. So he just tells you, Jesus was tempted by Satan 40 days and nights in the wilderness with wild animals. And the angels are ministering to him. That's it. And so this is part of Mark's design. Mark moves quickly. His goal is not to give you all these details about Jesus' temptation. I mean, I believe that the Holy Spirit, inspiring the whole council of God, knows that Matthew and Luke are going to fill in the details. So Mark, and his source is Peter. So Mark, this is John Mark. Amazing. This is the same Mark who missed the Mark with Paul. This is the same Mark who the Apostle Paul said, you know what, you're not, you're not faithful. You, you can't follow me into missions. You go. And later, somehow John Mark matures in his faith, partners up with Peter, and so the Apostle Peter, Peter's like, you look at, you see Peter's personality. Immediately, immediately, immediately. There's this impulsiveness, this childlikeness. Let's get to Jesus. Let's get to the point. Let's get to the cross, right? So, so the point is that Mark's source, of information, Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. John Mark, who wrote this, his information came from Peter. And so, so in Mark's design, it's to move it quickly. But when you're sitting in the classroom as an exegete, exegesis means to interpret the word of God, especially in its original language. When you're looking at exegesis, and when you're a theologian, then you stick with Mark. This is Mark's purpose. So then we're done. Let's pray. Mark just tells us Jesus was tempted. But when you're a pastor, something different. You've got to look at application. And here's what I here's where we draw from the whole counsel of God. Is that when you look at application, I think it's easy for us to look at Jesus' temptation and say, How easy was that? You're the Son of God. You're the Son of God. You're sinless. You came from heaven. Forty days, forty nights, piece of cake, right? Satan tempts you, and even if you know what the temptations are, you're like, you're God. But I'm Hanley. How, How can I overcome temptation through, even if you say overcome temptation through you, I'm not you. I'm not the Son of God. And so I think to make application, I want to draw from a canonical perspective the whole of Scripture, and I want to go outside of Mark and look at Matthew. Matthew And Luke, give us the details. And so, because of Mark's purpose, I'm only going to focus on one aspect of the temptation. Okay, Matthew tells us, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew tells us that there are three things, three stages to Jesus' temptation. I just want to focus on one, and it's the one that's closest to Mark, which is the kingdom of God, where Satan tempts Jesus, saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Because in the very next passage in Mark, Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom. So I see that connection. So that's the one I want to camp out on. So in this final third temptation, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, the devil, Satan, brings Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And basically, Satan says, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all of it. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. And at which Jesus commands him, be gone, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord alone. And Jesus responds with scripture. Again, when, if you're studying through Matthew, you're reading this, you're like, piece of cake. Satan's like, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdom of, kingdoms of the world. Jesus says, I am the king. <laughs> all these kingdoms are mine. I created it. Not a temptation. Easy, right? No, this is a real temptation. Here's why. I want you to think about this. At first glance, it seems like it's easy for Jesus to overcome. But here's where there's an emotional application for us. It was not easy. This is a real temptation. How is this a temptation? Because by offering all the kingdoms to Jesus, Satan is saying, Jesus, take the easy way out. Your Father's way is not the easy way out. My way is easy. My Burden is light. My yoke is not that heavy. Take the easy way out. Follow me. You see, Jesus knows that he will inherit all the kingdoms of the world. He knows where he's going. He will reign. Jesus will reign over the nations in an everlasting kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom and his ascension to the throne. Servant. Suffering servant. Isaiah. This is Mark themes now. These are from Mark. Not Matthew, right? Is it all these themes saying Jesus? It comes at the cost, and that cost is the shape of a cross, humiliation, temporary separation from your father, betrayal, shame, judgment, wrath, hell. And so Jesus has to die for His kingdom because His kingdom, and here's the application for us, right? Because His kingdom will be filled with people whom He redeems. Jesus knows where He's going. He says, Yes, I will have the kingdoms of the world, Satan, but I'm going to have to die for them. There are people that I'm going to die for, and they are going to make up My kingdom. People from every tongue, every tribe, and every race. People like you and me sitting here today, because Jesus did not take the easy way out. And... You can imagine, again, you look at the whole of Scripture. You look at the book of Job, and I wouldn't put it past Satan to go with his accusing ways. I could imagine what else Satan would have said to Jesus when he tempted him. And Satan could have said, you know, because the book of Job tells us that Satan goes before God and accuses God's people. I wouldn't put it past Satan to say, Jesus Look at the people you're going to die for. Look at the people you're going to die for. Are they worth it? You're the son of God. Forget your father's plan. You are the son of God. Do you really want to die for sinners? Is that what your father really wants? Look at these human beings. Look at how I control them. Look at how I I push them down. I will give them to you easily. Look at them. You're going to die for them. They're going to reject you at times. They're going to spit in your face. They're going to struggle with sin even after you die for them. They're going to, you know, and, and so Jesus knows that. He knows Judas is going to betray him. Jesus knows that Peter's going to mess up at first. But I could just imagine Jesus' thoughts. Satan, wait till I'm done with them. You're telling me this stuff because I haven't gone to the cross yet. After I die for Hanley, then look at him. And then he's still going to struggle. But wait till I'm done with him. And the same for all of you. Right, so I could imagine Satan bringing each of your names before Jesus and say, why should you die for him? Why should you die for Derek? Why should you die for John? Why should you die for Jason? Why should you die for Hamley? Why should you? Why should you, Jesus? Take the easy way out. How do we know that this is a real temptation for Jesus? Because later it shows up in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in agony, saying, Lord, please, if there's another way, please take this cup from me. Is there another way besides the cross? I cannot bear the separation from you. I cannot bear the physical, spiritual, emotional, mental torment. I'm about to go through hell on that cross. Is there another way? Take this cup from me. But then what does Jesus say? Not my will, but your will. Be done. Submission to the Father. Submission to the Holy Spirit. Suffering servant. Going to the cross. The King of kings, our servant king. That's how Jesus became king. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Why, Jesus? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God, it's because of his humiliation, not because of the easy way out. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee Should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' road to the throne went through Calvary. And that was for us. And it went through before that, before his victory, there was his first victory, which is overcoming temptation. At the end of our passage, notice verse 13 of our passage today, Mark chapter 1, verse 13, Mark tells us that the angels were ministering to him. Jesus passed the test. Christ fulfills perfect obedience, and that would make it possible for him to go to the cross. If he gave in to Satan, he wouldn't have been able to go to the cross for us. So by overcoming Satan's temptation, not only does Christ exemplify perfect obedience, but he passed the test that Adam failed. Jesus is true and better Adam, whereas Adam and Eve fell for the temptation of Satan, Jesus overcomes. So Adam fell in Genesis 3. And Romans chapter 5 tells us that Jesus is the true and better Adam. But look at the connection here. Okay, is that there's a major difference between the difficulty of Adam and Eve's temptation versus Jesus's temptation. Is that Adam and Eve failed despite being in paradise where animals were no threat to them. Adam and Eve did not have to starve for 40 days or 40 nights. Adam and Eve didn't have to deal with the conditions of the fallen wilderness. And all of this makes Jesus overcoming this temptation so much greater. And so by overcoming Satan's temptation, Jesus gives us a foretaste of his ultimate overcoming victory, which is the obedience that will take place at the cross. So here's the big idea of this morning's message, is that Jesus is the servant, Keyword: servant king. Jesus is the servant king who overcomes evil through perfect obedience. Where does this show up in our lives? How might this apply to us? I can think of two ways. One, Jesus' temptation is something we can relate to. Satan is asking Jesus to forget about God. Forget about God's plan. I think you and I can relate to that sometimes. Saying God's way is too hard. Forgive someone. Love someone who hurt me, serve God, give to God, die to myself, die to my sins? They don't deserve it. Why should I serve them? Why should I lower myself? Why should I serve them when they will reject me? Why should I continue to sacrifice when they're going to continue to not listen? I think we can understand that. But Jesus lowers himself so that we can be exalted. That's the heart of Mark 10.45, the main theme verse of Mark. Jesus came. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. This passage strikes at the core of our self-centeredness and shows us the sacrificial nature of true servant leadership. And this is the type of leader we long for in our world. The type of leader who, who God calls all of us to emulate and to be like. It's Jesus. And we'll look at, it, look at it more next week as he calls his first disciples, what type of leaders he calls as his kingdom personnel. But that's the first way, is this Jesus' temptation is something we can relate to and striking at our the core of our self-centeredness and challenging us to servanthood. But the second application is that Jesus Christ, the servant king, has gone before us into spiritual battle, into sin and temptation, and he's won. He's victorious. And so sometimes we can, I think, say, Jesus, it's too easy for you. You're God. What do you know about temptation? What do you know about struggle with sin? What do you know about pain, Jesus, other than the cross? Right? What do you know? Well, Jesus knows what it's like to be truly tempted. But here's the killer thing. Jesus knows what, what it's like to have all the power in the world to just say, I'm done with this pull the eject button, pull the parachute latch, I mean, whatever you want to call it. You see, the difference between you and me is we can be crushed in a trial and we can literally be hopeless. And we can cry out to God and say, God, if you don't get me out of this, I don't know what to do. I haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. There's animals that want to kill me. I'm tired. There's this devil who I can destroy. Well, we can't do that, right? But Jesus was like, I could destroy you, Satan. You're just a fallen angel. I will destroy you and I am equal to you, God the Father. I am equal to you, Holy Spirit. I can have my rights. That, you know, like, so if you're in a position where you actually have power to get yourself out, why wouldn't you do it? But that's where Jesus can connect with us. He can say, look, I had the power. My temptation was real. But I chose to continue to subject myself for you, for us, for our salvation, for God's mission. Right? So we follow Christ into battle, not because the battle is easy, but we follow Christ because he truly teaches us how to overcome. It wasn't just a magical he overcame. He teaches us how to have patience. He teaches us how to persevere. He teaches us how to how to suffer well, how to sacrifice, and how to depend on the sovereign plan of the Father. Because Jesus, in those moments, rather than depending on on the power that he could access, he submitted himself to the sovereign plan of God the Father. And you and I, when we are in temptation, and and when we're struggling in trial, sometimes we have to say, God, I don't know why you do. Not my will, but your will. I don't know why, but... I will submit to the Spirit's leading through the Word of God, and I will surrender to you. Jesus understands us. But Pastor Albert talks about, come meet Jesus. I that's so awesome. Come meet the Lord through the Word, and you will see that he is a suffering servant king who overcomes evil, not the easy way, not by overpowering it, but through obedience. His power is very different from the power of this world. It's a power that comes through humility and putting others before himself. I think that's very powerful. And that's why we praise him. That's why we sing to him. We worship him because he amazes us. Because we've never seen servanthood and power with this type of humiliation, this type of humility, this type of servanthood, this type of king. He is the king that's worthy of our worship. So let me lead us in prayer. We're going to take offering, and during that offering, there's going to be a song. Just praise the Lord. Okay, let's praise the Lord together. Let's pray. Father. Since the world began, we've never seen a Messiah like this. We've never seen a king like this. That captivates our souls and our hearts. Turns our worlds and our hearts upside down. Help us, Lord, to meet you as you are in your word. And to submit to you and follow you. Shape our hearts with the gospel of Mark. So that we can understand what it means to be part of your glorious kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.